Good morning, church. Please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 22. And when you get Luke 22 uh, marked out, let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We're going to have those two texts this morning uh, in our message. If you're visiting Christ Church, uh, my name is Mark, and I'm one of the ministers here on staff, and we're glad you've joined us. Uh, I want to give you guys, especially this service, if you can look around, you can see that we need some space. How about it? All right? Uh, and I know that, you know, we, we joke about you don't have a a seat necessarily for your Bible and for your purse and your coffee, so we got to create some room. But what we're decided to do is, beginning on September 8th, a couple of weeks from now, we're going to have a simulcast service at 945 over at the Student Center in the worship area. Uh, it'll have seats for about 350 people over there, uh, be a nice venue. There's going to be a live band singing the same music we're singing in this room. And when my ugly self walks out here to preach, I'll go up on the screen out there. And those of you that spend all the time looking at the screen anyway, you won't notice the difference. And so we want to encourage you, uh, if that's a service you want to attend, that's going to begin September 8th. We want to create as, me- as much space. It's obvious our church is choosing to come to the 945 service, the majority of people. So we want to make sure we have room for anybody who wants to come out here. Uh, so that's September 8th, and we want to encourage you to be a part of that, uh, if that fits your family's needs and your schedule. Uh, Circle discipleship on your outline if you're keeping notes today. We're going to continue in the message series where we're asking uh, Jesus from his words, what what can we know about God, what can we know about ourselves, and what can we know about the world in which we live, and how do we live out this discipleship that he's called us to? If you were here last week, we were in John chapter 13, where on the night, uh, uh, Thursday night, when Jesus would be betrayed and murdered... Uh, that he got together with his disciples in the upper room, and he noticed that none of them would lower themselves to care for the other's dirty feet. So if you remember, Jesus got down on his hands and knees, and he washed the feet of his disciples. And we pointed out that not only did he wash his feet, but he washed Judas's feet. So our Savior was willing to get on its hands and knees on the night that this man would betray him and serve him and love him and meet his need. Well, it's still Thursday where we are in the Bible. In fact, we're going to be in Thursday for probably four or five weeks because so much happened that it's Thursday night, they're in the upper room, and they're getting ready for the celebration of the Passover meal. Uh, Last things. I have a lot of memory of last conversations, last moments. Some of them I knew were the last moments. Uh, Some of them I didn't know would be the last moments. I've had conversations with people I thought I would see again, and I never saw them again. And I can remember the last thing we talked about. Or maybe a song that was playing when I was talking to them, or maybe a song that makes me think of them, or a smell, or a sight, or a location, or a special holy place. Shake your head if that means something to you. We get last things. In Luke chapter 22, in fact, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record this moment. They all grasped that Jesus was presenting one of these last things, these last moments at the Passover meal with his disciples. It would be something that they would hold on to and remember for the rest of their lives. They didn't look at this and say that was just for then. It became something that was powerful and resonated because we hold on to last things very desperately. See, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all took their time when they were recording the story of Jesus to record this particular night, the things that Jesus said, what he did, and what it meant to them. Luke chapter 22, verse 14. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. 
And after taking the cup, he gave thanks and he said, take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread and he gave thanks and he broke it and he gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. It's very common what we refer to this particular teaching on. But what I want to point out to you is not only did Jesus create this last thing with his disciples that particular night, but the early church grabbed onto this and held onto it for all it was worth. You'll notice in the book of Acts, whenever you read the book of Acts, that it records that the early church in its origination, when it was just the 12 uh, uh, disciples, well, minus Judas... They brought Matthias in, and they began to regularly practice that every time they got together, they would do what Jesus told them to do that last night with them, that they would remember, that they would participate, and that they would recall all that he had done for them. What I want to do when we talk about this thing called the Lord's Supper is I want to show you five parts of it that we participate in. First of all is the historical significance of the moment. The the Lord's Supper is tied to the Passover meal. Most of us know the story of the Passover. It's found in the book of Exodus. The the Jews were being persecuted by the Egyptians in slavery, and God called a man named Moses to go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. He took with him 10 plagues, and God said, here's what I want you to do. Pharaoh is a hard-hearted man. He does not want to submit himself to me, so I'm going to give you some things to capture his attention. And they increased in intensity from the first one all the way to the 10th one. The 10th one was that he would send the angel of death who would come and he would take the firstborn of every, every family, the firstborn of every family who did not submit themselves to God, who would not bow to God as the only true God. And Moses presented this. And Moses told them that they were to sacrifice a spring lamb. It needed to be the best spring lamb. It needed to be beautiful and perfect. And they would sacrifice that animal and they would take the blood of that lamb and they would wipe it over the doorpost of their house. And every Every family who sacrificed the lamb and spread the blood over the doorpost, that the angel of death would pass over that home and not take the firstborn. And there was great death in all of Egypt. But those families who spread the blood and covered their homes with the blood of the lamb would be spared. And on that night that Jesus was gathering with his disciples in that room, and they were having this discussion... He brought them together and reminded them of the Passover. And he said, I've been looking forward to this night, on the night that I suffer, to celebrate this Passover with you. Because it was at this moment that Jesus offered himself as the spring lamb. And what he would do that night would put blood on our homes and spare all of us from the wrath of God. Is that good news? But for many of us, the Passover is a historical thing. It happened in the past. What I want you to remember is Jesus never separated himself from the past. He was the completion of all the promises of the past. So what I need you to know about the history is the God who called Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who led Moses with the plagues, the the God who took them into the promised land and delivered them, that God is still alive and doing quite well, thank you. He didn't retire and he's not too old to care. That God is as active today as he's ever been and that's what Jesus wants us to know. He's linking us to the past. He's offering us a part of the Passover, of that great moment when the wrath of God comes in the judgment and you and I, for some ridiculous reason, get to stand before God and he calls us son and daughter and he welcomes us into his home. That's our Passover. 
and what we celebrate when we gather together around the Lord's Supper is a reminder that the promise given to the Israelites in Egypt that night is the same promise that he gives to us. And the church has grabbed onto this in their very beginning. You can look in church history. They didn't wait 300 and 400 years and say, what did he say? From the very beginning, they realized this. We call it different things. Depending on what church you were born and raised in, you probably heard one of these five terms for it. The first is the Eucharist. The Eucharist is a Greek word that means thanksgiving. So the elements of the Eucharist is the moment of thanksgiving, and that's all based on the fact that when Jesus held the Passover meal that night and he broke the bread and he passed out the wine, he said to them, at which before he told them what to do with it, he gave thanks to God. And I want you to keep that in your hearts because on the night he knew he was going to be murdered and brutalized, our Savior could still thank God. And he did. So some churches call it the Eucharist. Some call it the eulogia or eulogia, where we get our English word eulogy. And it is a word that means blessing. So at a funeral, when I'm given the opportunity by a family or any minister does to stand up or family member to speak about the one, we're, we're giving a blessing. We're sharing the blessing of their life and what happened with their life, and we're also blessing the family by reminding them that we're saying goodbye to someone who deserves to be remembered. Some churches call it the Lord's Supper. As a kid, I always had a problem with that because they gave you this little tiny piece of bread and this little shot glass of juice, and that wasn't a meal, so I didn't like supper. And my dad corrected me when I was grousing one day, and my dad told me that what it was was they would always have a big fellowship meal whenever the church gathered together, and a part of that meal was they would stop, take bread and wine, and remember Jesus. That's why some call it the Lord's Supper. Then you have the breaking of bread. This is quite often found in the book of Acts, and church historians will tell us that a majority of the time, but not every time, when they said they got together to break bread, that was either to have a big meal or it was specifically to have the Lord's Supper. And then the one that I grew up with that's probably more common and falls out of my mouth is communion. And I'll explain to you why that word, well, that comes from the Greek word koinonia, which means community. And I think there's a very valuable lesson in holding this together. So you can call it any one of those terms that you choose because what we call it doesn't change its reality. It's what we do with the opportunity we have in front of us. Now let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And I know we've been preaching on the message of Jesus, but I want to show you what the early church did with the message of Jesus about the Lord's Supper or communion. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three. Paul said, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed. Context. Please never forget that on the night that he should have been receiving, he was giving. On the night he should have been protecting himself, he was protecting us. On the night that he could have saved his own life, he saved mine. Ponder that, because that's Paul's message. And to a church that was getting it messed up and turning it into something about them, he said, this is what the Lord gave to me and I give to you. Jesus wanted us to have a memory. He wanted us to have a moment. He wanted to connect it to history and he wanted to project it into the future and he did that. So that's the first piece. It's got a historical resonance to it. Second of all, it's our coming together for the Lord's Supper. There's a communal piece to this. Now, this may seem to some of you like, why is that important? But I think it's very important. There's a communal piece. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. As often as you eat this bread and drink this, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. 
Proclamation, not privacy, is the most important part of the Lord's Supper. I want to say that again. Proclamation and not privacy. We in the Protestant churches, uh, we've had an overreaction to other churches' use of the Lord's Supper. And so we've turned this into the holy I stink moment. Where you know how it is. We sing a happy song. We're all glad to see each other. We're glad that Jesus loves us. Now we have to have this moment where we act like dirt. And then we take the Lord's Supper, feel filthy for a few moments, shake it off, and go back to praising Jesus. Now, there are moments when the Lord's Supper should bring tears to our eyes. Would you agree? And yet there's also moments that ought to make us laugh. And we ought to smile and go, I can't believe I'm not going to pay for my sins. I can't believe I'm saved and there's hope. So it should bring just a plethora of emotions, but not one over the other. And I want you to know when you look in the scriptures, you'll never see the Lord's Supper taken individually. It's taken corporately, always. It's done in the body. Uh, If I can draw real, just ridiculous, which I'm I'm famous for, ridiculous illustrations, it'd be like having Thanksgiving dinner by yourself on purpose. It negates the whole concept of gathering together, thankfully, with ones you love. You can do it, just doesn't make it right. So when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, separate of the body, now that doesn't mean that some sanctioned minister has to touch something for it to be real. But whenever you're with other Christians, whether it's a Tuesday morning, a Friday night, or a Sunday in worship, you can spend time together remembering Jesus Christ. Amen? When we come together, not in isolation, not my own little moment, but our moment where we testify together. Because the truth is, on Sunday mornings, I'm the one who gets to talk most of the time. And you have as much to say as I do. But what we do together is we testify. We proclaim together. I may have nothing in common with you except one simple thing. Jesus Christ loves me like he loves you, and that makes us brother and sister. So when we take the cup and we take the bread, we are testifying to one another. I may not even know your name. But together, when we hold that body and blood, we're family, right, church? And this community. So there's a historic part of it, a communal part of it. In fact, look with me. I'm going to just run through these quick. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul uses a term that we need to keep in mind all the time. Verse 17, when you come together. Verse 18, when you come together as a church. Verse 20, when you come together. Verse 33, when you come together. Are you guys picking this up? Verse 34, when you come together. Paul says this church had messed it up because they were all getting together, having this big meal, but the rich people were eating all their lavish food and stuffing themselves, and the poorer folks in the church would come in, and they would have nothing, and the rich people weren't feeding them. And Paul said, how can you make that the Lord's Supper when you don't care for your fellow friend? It's about us being together, being united, and testifying to one another, proclaiming that Jesus Christ is Lord. Third piece, there's a physical participation, and this is a no-brainer, but let's talk about it. It's eating the bread and drinking the cup. At the Passover meal, they had great food. They had herb-roasted lamb. They had this uh, fruit dip that they would dip bread into and, and eat. They would have four glasses of great wine. They had this wonderful, lavish meal. And Jesus wanted to create a memory. There are certain songs that can make me become a 17-year-old again. Do you guys understand what that is? I'll hear a song, and I can tell you exactly where I was in South Bend, Indiana, at the age of 17 when that song played. 
There are other songs that come on the radio, and I turn them off right away because I have visions of me trying to dance, and I think, I never want to see that again. <laughs> I hear a song, and I, every time I hear Led Zeppelin's uh, immigrant song, I think of running out of the locker room for high school football games onto the field. We are sensory creatures, aren't we? Eat the bread, drink the cup. Jesus once said, if you won't eat my flesh or drink my blood, you cannot be a part of me. He wasn't speaking about the Lord's Supper, but the imagery, the tactile imagery of tasting the sweetness of the wine and the texture of the bread, Jesus wanted to create a memory for us. Verse 23, he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper. Notice that we believe that Jesus added a fifth glass of wine to the Passover and made it about him. But what I love about Jesus is even when he makes something about him, it feels like it's about us because he's that good and loving. He said, this cup is a new covenant. My blood do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Interesting moment there. There's not much said about the cup. Some people have turned the cup into something, I think, a little bit more than it needed to be. There are some churches, uh, I want you to know, that they pass one cup because it says he took the cup. Could you imagine if 1,300 people had to hit off the same cup today? You might skip that Sunday, wouldn't you? I know every school teacher here has got that little, that sanitation gel they're ready to squirt all over us. I think it's not the cup. It's what the cup means. What it means to us and how we participate in it. In Matthew 26, Mark 14, Luke 22, you can see on the screen here. All Jesus said was, I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. You know what that means, church? That great banquet that we read about in the book of Revelation that Jesus talked about in three different parables, that one day Jesus is going to stand at the head of a table of which we are all gathered around, and he's going to raise a glass of wine, and it will not be the wine of God's wrath. It will be the fruit of his blessing. And we will all toast together physically that Jesus Christ is Lord of all, just like we knew it. And we will drink of that. We will celebrate that. It isn't that good news. That one day, he said, I won't drink of this wine again with you until that day that I've put everything back into place. I don't know about you. That makes my tail wag. I'm excited about that. And for those of you who go, well, I don't drink wine, you will, and you'll like it. All right, so we have a historic piece, a community piece, a physical piece. Let's talk about the mental piece. This is important for us because you can slip into, uh, you can, I think I can. A lot of times I can, I can drive home from the church to my house and never ever put my mind into practice of what I'm doing because I do it so often. I, did I turn on my turn signal? Did I come to a complete stop? Some of you are going, don't drive the way I do. Don't, don't. Do you have the ability to do things physically and never mentally be engaged? Yeah. God has given us the ability to do that, but we're told not to here. We're told not to disengage and just physically participate. In fact, in verses 24 and 25, Jesus makes it clear, do this in remembrance of me. I have a, a pipe. I told you a long time ago, if you could remember, that I have a candy dish that came from my grandma. I have one of my grandfather's pipe. Now, I'm not a proponent of smoking, just not. But when I smell pipe smoke and I see that pipe, 
It takes me back to a place in time that reminds me of a little five foot seven Irishman who I love. And when I smell that smoke and I see that pipe, it means nothing to you. But when I open the cabinet that I keep that in to get something else and there's that pipe, it makes me smile. I remember conversations from a man who's been gone for 20 years. I remember a candy jar. I remember the way I could go over and make fun of his daughter, my mom. I remember that wonderful couple who don't exist anymore. They're with Jesus. And I miss them desperately, but I don't have to miss them completely because every time I see that, it's in remembrance of him. You guys get that, don't you? We all have those things and those moments. That's what we're to do every time we gather. It's not about me, heaven forbid. It's not about the music or the traffic or the cafe or friends. It's about Jesus. And whatever we do, we're to do it in remembrance of him, especially when we take the elements that he's given. Because truthfully, it's not the elements we hold. It's who held them and gave them to us. And now who holds my soul? That's what it means mentally to participate. The Lord's Supper is not for you to get caught up on your internal life, your inner being. It's not mystical or transcendent. The, the bread doesn't turn into flesh and the wine doesn't turn into blood. They're symbols that remind us, like a little pipe does, of someone who changed my life and who I love. You see, this is not a poetic thing. Jesus' church was a historical fact. He's not a legend. He's not a superhero. He was a man made of flesh and blood who bled for us, who died, and was murdered. He walked this earth. He ate food. He breathed air. He was limited by flesh. He is the incarnation. He was tortured on a cross in front of eyewitnesses, both that believed in him and did not believe in him, and he swayed the crowd. It was that physical man who we remember because God sent him to die for us. You see, the Lord's Supper roots us time after time in the filthiest moment in all of history, in the most unjust, unrighteous, despicable act that humankind could ever bring about. We were blessed that Jesus broke the bread, handed us the wine, and said, I'm going to give you my body, I'm going to give you my blood, and my God will pass over you. That's what it meant. So history, community, physicality, a mentality, we know how to do that. But I think the fifth piece of the Lord's Supper is the difference that we're supposed to hold on to the tightest, the spiritual participation in the Lord's Supper. Because I'll have you know that people who don't believe in Jesus can gather, eat, drink, and remember. So what's the difference? I don't believe the Lord's Supper is for people that aren't believers in Jesus. In fact, I think we should be cautious. I don't want to stand and have membership cards. That's kind of ridiculous. But I want to caution you. If Jesus isn't your Lord and Savior, then the Lord's Supper means nothing. Because all you're doing is eating, drinking, and kind of remembering. So what's the difference? Paul says it in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-seven: Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. There are two sacraments that we hold here in the church. Fancy word for saying methods or observances. 
We believe very, very strongly as a church, as a leadership of this church, that the Lord's Supper and baptism, done the way the Bible says they should be done, is most important. Not over obedience and faith and belief, no. But I believe you have to do Bible things Bible ways because God knew what he was doing. So we baptize by immersion and we practice the Lord's Supper every week. Some of you come from a background where you're not used to that. Your church practices it once a month or once a quarter or once a year. We have no judgment on that. We've made a choice to practice it every week because I don't think you can remember too much about Jesus. Now, some are correct and they say, but if you do it every week, doesn't that diminish it? If Heather kissed me every day, I wouldn't go, come on, five days in a row, what's up? I would say more, please. Some things are worth remembering. Can I have an amen? All right. But biblically, there's no directive on how often you're to take it. Jesus said, just as often as you do. So, no judgment on any other church, but now you know why we do it here this way. Because when we gather together and we'll have over 2,000 people every week sit in this room alone, I think the best thing we can do is look at each other and say, how about Jesus? And remember. Because the most important verse about the Lord's Supper is actually found in 1 Corinthians 10, 16. Paul says, is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? That's a little deeper than remembering, isn't it? That is participating. Would you suffer for the one who suffered for you? Would you give your life so others could know about the one who gave his life so we would know him? To participate in the body and blood of Jesus Christ is not just a symbolic act in the middle of a worship service. It's actually a statement that brings us all together on one thing. You can disagree with some of the things I teach. You can wonder where I got my information, and I'm so open to that because I'm a flawed man too. But I'll tell you the one thing. When I sit next to an absolute stranger and we hold the blood of Jesus Christ and the body of Jesus Christ and we take that together, there is no bigger difference than what that brings together in unity. And see, the truth of it all is there's a verse I found in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. I know it's been in there. My Bible has it in there. I've read it several times as I try to read through the Bible every year. But at the end of it, I never notice this verse. Here's what it says. For no matter how many promises God has made... They are yes in Jesus. Have you ever seen that? Anything God ever promised, Jesus has or will make it happen. He's that big. He's that powerful. And on the night he was betrayed, gathered with his 12 disciples, he took a glass of wine and a piece of bread, and he said, I'm going to offer these to you. Take and eat. This is my body. This is my blood. All of this is done for you. And three days later, everything God promised was made yes in Jesus. Let's stand together and sing. I'm going to ask the communion servers to please begin to uh, hand out the Lord's Supper today. As they do, we're going to ask you to hold it. Normally, our custom is to take it as it's given to you and place it back in the tray, but we're just going to ask you this morning, take a piece of bread, take a cup of the juice, and hold it so we can take it together. 
that's not our practice here, but it's a powerful moment in community that the great equalizer in this entire room, whether you've lived a perfectly holy life, you're just a person who's walking with God every day richly, or you're struggling to even understand God's goodness, why would he love someone like me? You're welcome in this place. Because we just saying, it's, it's not our goodness that saves us, it's the blood of Jesus. It's his sacrifice that night. The greatest gift I'll ever receive in my entire lifetime, so powerful, is that night when he should have chosen himself, he chose me. And like a wedding ring or a picture of a deceased loved one, there's something in each of our lives that means something to us. It's powerful and valuable and rich. We pray that our time together each and every week is all about this moment. That the message is about this moment. That our singing is about him. That our praying is about Jesus and what he wants done. That the decisions around the table with the lights on them. It's not about Christ's church. Who cares about Christ's church of Orinogo? But we care about Christ and his church and what he's doing all over the world. See, this moment unites us in history. It's our symbolic equivalent of wiping the blood across the doorpost begging God to show us mercy, asking God to be our provision and our care. And what we receive is not just we don't get smoked by God. What we get is more than that. Think about this with me. And you can acknowledge vocally or you can shake your head or just sit there and realize the truth of what the Bible promises. What Jesus did that night gives us peace with God. We're not his enemy anymore. He's never hated us, but now he doesn't hate what we're doing and what we're doing to ourselves. We have joy in living with Jesus. That even in our worst moments, Jesus gives us a strength and a joy that we don't possess on our own. I have hope for the future when each and every day this world offers me very little to hope in. I know that Jesus Christ can set all things right. And I'm betting my life that he's gonna do that. You see, we also have freedom from fear, don't we, church? And no matter what we fear is coming around the corner, our God is bigger than that. And he promised to never leave us nor forsake us. He would never abandon us. He gives us security in our adversity. He gives me comfort, healing, and victory. We know this to be true, don't we? On the night he was betrayed, Jesus reached over for bread on the table In the Passover meal, because God told them to be ready, in fact, the patriarch of the family would stand holding a staff. And it was holding a staff reminding the people at the table that when God said move, they were ready to move. Children would ask a question of the grandfather or father at the table and tell us about God's faithfulness here and tell us about this and tell us about that. And the father would recite all the goodness of God. They used unleavened bread that night because they were so ready to leave that they did not allow the yeast into the bread because it wouldn't have time to raise. That's why churches today use unleavened bread because Jesus equated leaven as an example of sin. How when sin gets into anything, it corrupts everything. So Jesus took a piece of unleavened bread that night and he broke it and he took a piece of it and he handed it to every one of the disciples. Please take the bread. And he said these words. He said, this is my body given for you Do this in remembrance of me. And together they ate. 
and then Jesus took the glass of wine. A lot of scholars believe they passed the glass of wine around or maybe they all had their individual ones. But he took this and in a very powerful moment, when he held that wine and saw the richness of the red, he knew that within hours, it would be his blood out in the air that would be bright red over the doorpost of every one of our homes to protect us for eternity. And yet, my Jesus gave thanks. And he said these words, take this and divide it among you, for I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Let us take our cups and together, in honor of Jesus, in remembrance of his hope, let us drink. It's in this moment that what divides us unites us by the power of Jesus Christ. Those cups that you hold, hold on to them. You'll be able to get rid of them at the end of the service. But let's be reminded as we pray that God has done an amazing thing in the past, right now, and forevermore.